Judges is a study in decline. <laughs> it's a study of God's people um, becoming more and more enamored with, enchanted, and corrupted by the world. Uh, and today's message on Jephthah is a message that takes a major step down. Um, we have tried to communicate this idea that Judges is about the corruption of the world and, and the attractions of the world and how it goes down with all of the stuff we have up here on the stage. Um, and, and, and as you go through cycle after cycle of Judges, it's not a linear cycle. That's why we have a toilet up here. It's because the cycle gets worse. It's, it's going downhill. And, and in today's episode with Jephthah, um, it takes a major step down as we see the corruption that really has affected Jephthah's view of God and, and view of others. And it's a really troubling, difficult passage. Um, and so I've, I've got three resources to help with some of the trouble out there. Um, uh, Grant Nabholtz actually emailed me earlier this week, and he said, what in the world are these guys doing in Hebrews chapter 11? Um, Jephthah and Samson, Gideon, they're all in Hebrews chapter 11. How did they make it? Um, and so to, to deal with that, there's an article by uh, Kenneth Way that's out at the Connection Center. It's on the website as well that really talks about a really important framework, I think, for you to have, have in terms of why are, why are these guys that we're showing their decline and we're showing their lack of faithfulness to the Lord, how did they end up in Hebrews 11? It's a, it's a great treatment, I, I think, to help you with that. The other thing is there's a lot going on with Jephthah. And um, I can't cover all of that, and so I did want to put in another set of lessons that are, that are embedded in there from, from Kenneth Way as well. It's, it's his lessons on Jephthah. I think it's really worth reading. But the most troubling thing about Jephthah is this vow. In fact, we're going to see it as we move through the passage. Normally, the situation is there's an oppression, and we get kind of an elongated story of the deliverance and how God used the judge to deliver them. Um, that doesn't take place in this passage. The deliverance and the battle is just two verses. Um, the real focus of this passage is this vow that Jephthah makes and him following through on the vow. And, and there are some ways you can do cartwheels and you can shuffle around to try to uh, say he meant something different or he did something different, but, but he made a horrible vow and did a horrible thing. And um, Barry Webb's article really deals with kind of what's happening there and and um, whether he should have, it, once he made the vow, whether he should have followed through, and the answer is no, he shouldn't have. Uh, but we're going to look at this Jephthah story, and a victory is going to become a defeat. They're going to win. They're going to put down the oppression of the Ammonites. Again, two verses. But the defeat is both personally and nationally. Um, th there's going to be a victory, but in the midst of the victory, the thing that casts a shadow over it it's what goes on in Jephthah's own personal life and in his family, and it's because of the corruption of the world. Um, and the other thing that's going to happen in this passage is it's not going to be just personal. It's going to be national. Everything, there's deliverance, but it results in civil war. And from here on out to the end of the book, the, the nation itself is, is not only oppressed by others, but it's in conflict with itself because when when the world's perspective invades, it, it's destructive to you and to all of your relationships, and we're seeing that in the book of Judges. Um, now, 
the ancient world and our world are not all that different, okay? They're just not. Uh, the corruption is very similar. Um, recently, uh, even for our elders' retreat, which we had this past weekend, uh, we listened to a series of lectures by Joel Lawrence, um, uh, and this, there were three lectures in it, um, The World After 2020, The Church After 2020, and The Pastor After 2020. It's a fascinating set of lectures, but what Joel Lawrence essentially says is, that in our contemporary world, people are autonomous. They're enamored with what he calls mammon, the, the stuff of the world. And, and they're angry. Those are the three things he, he says characterize our world. Uh, I would summarize it a little bit this. People are independent. They're, they're in it for themselves. They only are, are thinking about themselves. Am I hurt by this? Am I going to succeed by this? Is this going to be- benefit me? Does this have any connection to me? If it doesn't, I don't care. <laughs> People are in very independent. There's, there's very la- not much unity. We don't see ourselves as much of a group anymore. Um, and people are entitled. They feel entitled to success, and they feel entitled in, in our context to the American dream. We, we feel entitled to what other people have. We're independent. It's about me. We're entitled. And the world is promising you can have all of this. We see it on television all the time. You can have all of this, but because we're not getting it, we are enraged. <laughs> we are angry. Uh, and Joel Lawrence talks about the world being that way, and he talks about how that has, has really dominated the church, being in, independent and the church entitled, and we've got a nice building, and we've got a new projector, and you know we want it to be bright, and we want the sound to be just like we want the sound to be. We're, we feel entitled for the worship to be what we want it to be, and, and when it's not, we get mad about it. Um, my, my application, before I even get to the passage, is this. The ancient world and our present world, not very different. Self-centered, power-hungry, and violent. I want my stuff. And power-hungry may not be, you know, you want a big position. You want to control the corporation. But you may even just, I just want to control my little part of the world. <laughs> if I could just have control of this little thing. And, and when, we, when we don't get that, there's rage. There's a, there's a sense of, uh, I, I, I won't stand for that anymore. Um, so through this whole story, it's going to be easy to point our finger at Jephthah and go, oh my word, how could he be that way? <laughs> Before we get too far down that road, I really think our world, um, and, and even a large part of the church, is, is contaminated by the way the world thinks. And so uh, as we look at this passage, we're going to see really a focus mostly on Jephthah. At the end, we're going to see how the civil war breaks out. Um, and then we're going to, at the very, very end, we're going to see three minor judges who I'm going to cover very quickly. But those minor judges will just get us closer to 12, okay? Because the, the judges total 12 to kind of show the complete corruption of the entire nation of Israel. Um, now, as we get into this passage, I just want to tell you before we get there, um, God's going to God's going to let things go here. Um, Here's how uh, Kenneth Way summarizes the whole passage. He says, um, God may passively let his people destroy themselves when they persist in selfish obsessions. When you give yourself to selfish pursuits, at some points God is just going to back off and say, have it. (laughs) I'm going to let it consume you. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. That's a New Testament thing as well. If you go to uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, let me just read you the, the Romans version of this 
um, after Christ. This is after Christ has been raised, and this is 25 years after that. Um, Here's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made known, so that men are without excuse. God's made it clear through creation that he exists and he's magnificent, he's in control. There's enough out there to convince you of that. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual immorality, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever to be praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. There's another passage, if I kept reading, that God gives them over, he gives them over. God will eventually give a culture and he gives people over and just says, if you're not turning to me, I'm going to let you destroy yourselves. And that's true in the passage we're going to look at with Jephthah. I think it's true in our society. And unfortunately, (laughs) it can be true in our world in in subtle ways. Because Jephthah is, um, he's in the hall of fame of faith. He's used by God. He's going to evoke the name of the Lord in a number of different ways. But the question is, does he really know God? Or or does he just say he knows God, but really what's framing his worldview is the world's view? Um, The passage begins with Jephthah and his daughter. And and again, there's going to be a battle scene in here, but it's just two verses. The real focus of, of this is about this rash vow of Jephthah that comes from his pagan mindset. Um, and and I, I see a, a parallel to what Jesus said when the uh, Pharisees asked him, how do you fulfill the law? He, he said, it's really two things. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love others as yourself. Jephthah doesn't do either one of those. He doesn't know how to love the Lord, and he certainly doesn't love others. And in this first scene, what we're going to see is that when God's people abandon him as the priority of their lives, and I'm calling that idolatry, okay? I could say idolatry, but everybody would be thinking, do I have a little statue in my house? That's not what I mean. If God's not the primary focus and priority in your life, then you've got an idol. <laughs> the things of the world have enamored you. When that happens, then you don't, you don't really even know what it means to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The story begins with an interesting turn. It, it says this, um, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, Okay, so even though I'm going to tell you that Jephthah is not thinking right, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and is going to use him in a mighty way. Uh, Lawson Younger says this, As pointed out in the discussion of the Spirit of the Lord clothing Gideon, this does not presuppose any particular level of spirituality on the part of the recipient. 
It affirms Yahweh's involvement in empowerment, but it does not guarantee the, spirit, the, the recipient's spirituality. Um, this is very parallel to something that happens in the book of Acts. Um, in the book of Acts, um, there are two different words that are used for people being filled with the Spirit. Now, if you, if you see it in English, it's hard to distinguish, and so it just, it, it's, they're filled with the Spirit. But there's two different Greek words that are used for people filled with the Spirit. Um, there's one word that's used frequently. When people are filled, the Greek word is pimplemi, and, and that filling with the Spirit is an empowerment for them to do something for them to be empowered to do something miraculous, empowered to preach the word. They are, they are filled with the Spirit, and God uses them. There's a completely different word that is used, plerao, in the book of Acts. When people are filled with the Spirit, and it means maturity, it, it means they are becoming more spiritual. In Ephesians 5.18, when it says, be filled with the Spirit, it's this plerao word. It is allow the Spirit to control you and produce maturity and spirituality in you. Um, God can use you. He can fill you to use you in a certain situation. It doesn't necessarily mean you are spiritual. It just means he needed somebody and you were it. By grace, he chose to use you. Um, but God can fill you when you allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit, and it really begins to, to mature you and, and you become more spiritual. There's a difference and for Jephthah, it's this second empowering thing that comes upon him. Um, so let's continue. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed the Gilead in Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow. <laughs> okay, He's empowered. He begins the deliverance. But then we have this interruption in here. But Jephthah made a vow. And that makes us pause. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give me the Ammonites, and if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammon, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Well, the Spirit of the Lord has already come upon him. Um, he knows that he's empowered for the victory. But he's still saying, listen, if you give me the Amorites, then whatever, and that whatever can, can mean whatever or whoever, can mean either one, whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph, um, I'll make a, a burnt offering. The, one, of the, um, one of the five offerings that is offered in the Old Testament is a burnt offering. And, and it is the offering where um, the animal is completely burned up. The whole thing is consumed. Um, and so Jephthah makes this vow. Now, this, this vow itself, whether he follows through on it, it is its own problem. Uh, Phyllis Tribble, in a fascinating book called Texts of Terror, and by the way, this is a terrifying text, uh, she says this, Jephthah himself does not evidence the assurance that the Spirit of Yahweh ought to give. Rather than acting with conviction and courage, he responds with doubt and demand. <laughs> if you'll do this. And if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Um, I love Lawson Younger's comment here. While some scholars have interpreted Jephthah's vow as rash and hastily worded, others have seen it as manipulative. In fact, Jephthah's vow is both rash and manipulative. It is rash and man he's trying to, as Barry Webb would say, he's trying to bribe God. If you do this, I'll do this. By the way, that is a pagan mindset. 
It's making deals with God. Now, for him, it was a deal for the victory in the battle, and it involved a rash vow to say, I'll sacrifice whatever shows up coming out of my house when I return. But the pagan mindset um, slowly slips into our world when we start making deals with God. God, I'll read my Bible every day if you'll just give me this. If you'll help me pass this test, I will. (laughs) Or God, even before that, God, if you'll help me overcome this stupid decision that I made, then I will serve the Lord. I'll, I'll get on the worship team. I'll, I'll, I'll teach the kids. Um, you, whatever deal you make with the Lord, um, Lord, if, if you, I'll do this if you'll do this. Um, it's, it's a problem. He's, he, he, the Spirit of the Lord is on him. That's all he needs. But because he's looked at the, the culture around him that makes deals with their gods, he's making a deal with his God. And then the nature of the deal is, uh, is troubling. While the word choice is broad enough to include both humans and animals, it really can mean whatever. The latter would generally not be expected to meet him, whatever meets me. That, the word for meeting there is a personal relational term for people meeting him. And the only animals that might actually come out of the house are dogs and donkeys, which were unclean for the Israelites to sacrifice. Now, I, I really believe Jephthah is so unclear on what God's word really says that he might think he could do that, but it's all messed up. (laughs) Here's the two verses on the battle. He makes the vow. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20,000 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Minnath, as far as Abel Kiriam. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Battle over. Okay, so he's empowered. He wins the battle. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story in the context of Judges is to show the constant decline of God's people and even God's leaders. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of temporals, she's so excited. Dad's home and he's victorious in the battle. Notice what gets highlighted, though. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. It's emphasized. Only child, no other sons, no other daughters. Um, and if you remember, Jephthah in our last passage, um, he, was, he was kicked out by his family and run away, taken out of the inheritance, and he makes the deal so he can become head of the clan to get all of his inheritance back. And because of his lack of spirituality, because of his lack of submission to the Lord, he's going to end up with actually no heirs in all of this. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried out, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I'm not certain, but it looks like he's blaming her. It's your fault for coming out. (laughs) He made the vow. Um, I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Why did you come out? He, he is surprised that it's her. Robert Chisholm says, Jephthah's, brow of, Jephthah's brand of Yahwism, worshiping Yahweh, becoming a follower of Yahweh, had been tainted by the paganism around him. It's the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Moabites. They're the ones who practice human sacrifice, child sacrifice. And, and 
it really looks like Jephthah is, is not only just making deals, but he's making a deal. I'll sacrifice a human. He's just surprised it happened to be his daughter that came out. And that had, that had subtly invaded his worldview. Um, I mean, he evokes the name of the Lord. He's used by God. But the views of the world had, had subtly soaked in. And he didn't, he didn't even notice that they weren't really a part of the truth. Um, it's not a show that I, I watch, uh, but it's, it's kind of like watching um, a show I don't watch, so I'm not sure how great this is, um, The Good Life, okay? Funny show, you'll, you'll laugh, I've seen a couple of episodes. Um, but the theology of the show is, if you're good, you go to heaven, you're bad, you don't go to heaven. Um, there's nothing in there about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, validated by the resurrection, and if you have faith in that, that's what assures your eternal destiny. <laughs> and little by little, when we watch enough things in the world, we listen to enough of the songs out there, we watch and pay attention closely to the commercials out there that says, yes, you can have this. You can have this. This can be yours too. Um, all of a sudden, we start to feel entitled and enraged when we don't get it. Um, our brand of worshiping the Lord can be tainted by the paganism around us. There's a subtle infiltration of the world. It's so easy to think that you're living for the Lord only to find out that your faith has been shaped more by the culture than by the Lord himself. One of the ways you can probably test that is, are you mad? (laughs) Are you finding your satisfaction in the Lord? Are you angry about the things that are going on in your life? Because you're entitled to something more. Because God's here to serve you instead of you being here to serve him for his glory. Here's her response. My father, she replied. By the way, this is worse. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. She's going to go along with this. Robert Chisholm says, Jephthah's daughter insisted that her father keep his vow. In a patriarchal society, perhaps she had no other option, but perhaps her insistence that her father keep his vow illustrates how deeply pagan thinking permeated the minds of the people at the stage of Israel's history. She thought, Dad, you did this? Yeah, this is how it works. You make a deal with God. All my Moabite friends, they do this too. They've had to be sacrificed. It's how it works in the world. Another application, there's, folks, generational drift in our walk with the Lord. If you're not sold out 100% to the Lord, then you can't expect your children to do anything other than follow your example and drift even less. She seems to be going along with the plan. Her father says, you may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father. And he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. Now, um, the idea that she was a virgin is what some people use as kind of their cartwheel to go, oh, she just had to remain a virgin, and she went to some temple to serve somewhere. In all likelihood, the idea that she was a virgin goes back to he had no other sons and daughters. She didn't give him any children. But he did as he vowed. 
So he made the vow. Should he have kept the vow? There's a whole article out there. But let me show you this. There's a whole chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27, that literally the title of it should be, what to do when you make a stupid vow. That's what Leviticus 27 is. Um, It's when you make a vow and you realize it's crazy, what do you do? The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male uh, between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels according to the sanctuary shekel, uh, for a female, set the value as 30 shekels. Don't, we're not going to worry about that. All we're going to, if you vow somebody, you can't vow people, okay? You're just, you're not allowed to vow people. And, but if you do it and you go, well, that was crazy. Now I don't have a wife. I vowed my wife. I, I need my wife back. You can get out of your stupid vow, not by just saying, oh, I made a mistake. Ali Ali income free. What you do is you go to the temple and you say, I made a stupid vow. I'm going to pay the value to get it back. And if it's like the value of your, if you vowed your house and then you, you know, in some crazy moment you said, I'm going to give my house to the Lord. And then you come home and your wife says appropriately, you did what? <laughs> you could get out of that vow, take the vow seriously. But what you have to do is go get the value of your house, pay for it plus 20%. You take out a second mortgage. That's how you get out of a stupid vow. A stupid vow you have to keep, but it's going to cost you to get out of it. And if you're wondering whether God is gracious in this, um, Leviticus 27, 8 says this, if anyone making a vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated to, is to be presented to the priest who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. If you've made a stupid vow and you can't afford the price, God's so gracious. He says, let's negotiate it. The vow's important, but we'll negotiate you out of the stupid vows you make. Um, should Jephthah have followed through? No, he should have paid to get his way out of it. Um, Mary Evans says, the implication is that God does not treat as valid vows that in themselves transgress his purposes. Certain sacrifices are not acceptable even, the, even in the fulfillment of a vow. God makes it clear that to bring them is to profane his holy name. There are certain things you can't vow. By the way, you can't vow to pledge something that's already God's. You can't, you, like you can't vow to give your tithe. Like, I'm really going to give my tithe. I vow to give my tithe. No, that's already his. You can't, you can't vow that. Um, you can't vow things that it's not yours to vow. Somebody else's life. You're not allowed to vow that. If you do that, you have to pay to get yourself out of it. Um, Robert Chisholm says this. If Jephthah had understood the Lord's priorities and commands... He would have realized that fulfilling his vows simply compounded the crime. Of course, therein lies the problem. After all, if he had known the law, he would not have promised to God a human sacrifice in the first place. Um, He knew more about the world's value system and how the world feels like you relate to God than what God said about how you relate to God. He had more of a worldview than a biblical view. That's his problem. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Um, she's remembered, not him. He's, he's trying to become the head of the family, win this victory, victory, get a guarantee from God that he'll be victorious. And people don't have a commemoration to remember Jephthah. They have a commemoration to remember his poor daughter. 
No matter what Jephthah's intention may have been at the time of his vow, the fact that he actually did offer her up his daughter indicates the language of the vow was fluid enough to encompass human beings, including wisdom. Uh, Robert Chisholm goes on to say, he was willing and maybe intended to make a human offering from the very beginning, but he didn't expect his daughter to meet him first. I think that's clear. He, he didn't ex- he's surprised that it's his daughter. I don't, I don't think he was wanting to sacrifice her. I think that's another principle in this. When we get enamored by the world and we begin to live the world's way, we don't always see the consequences of it. We start, we start acting like the world acts, and you, you can't always foresee, oh, that's going to turn out this way. That, that's why it's so important for us to, to make sure our view of life comes out of biblical truth, not what the world is trying to sell as biblical truth. This, this victory, two verses of it, the victory, they beat the Ammonites. Whoop-de-doo, who cares? This victory turns into a personal tragedy for him, not only because he, of his daughter being lost, but because of the corruption. This guy is, is so messed up because the world has infiltrated his view that he thinks he could bargain with God He could pledge a human and that the right thing to do would be to follow up on that. Yeah, there's a victory here, but it's it's more tragic. And the tragedy goes beyond just his own personal experience. It becomes national. Um, Jephthah's going to have an interaction with the Ephraimites. Uh, Jephthah and the battle is all on the east part of the Jordan. That's where the Ammonites are. The Gileadites are on the east side of the Jordan River. The Ephraimites are from the west side of the Jordan. Um, and, and this is going to become a civil war that's going to last until the end of the book. Um, but just like Jephthah doesn't know how to love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, um, when God's people abandon him as the priority of their lives, when you become idolatrous, you don't know how to love other people either. You, you mess up your own life and your relationship with the Lord, and then it results in chaos with other people. Here we go. The Ephraimites' forces were called out, uh, and they crossed the, over the Zephon. They, they cross over the Jordan. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. <laughs> I mean, just, just rash anger all over the place. Um, why didn't you call us? And basically, it's why didn't you call us so we could pillage and plunder and get some of the spoils of war? Because of what you did, we're going to burn down your house. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't, uh, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life into my own hands. I crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. That's accurate. That is actually true. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? Well, why are you so mad? You didn't come to help. Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, So now the battle is not the Israelites against the Ammonites, pagans. Now it's Gileadites against um, the Ephraimites. It's, It's a civil war within God's people. Now they're fighting with each other. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. They capture the crossing of the river. They've wiped them out on the side of the river. They capture the crossing of the river so that they can stop anybody who's trying to go home. 
And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? He replied, no. They said, all right, say Shibboleth. If they said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Here's what happens. Um, there's a civil war. All the Southerners who are trying to you know, get back home, uh, they get to the Mason-Dixon line, and the Northerners are standing there, and they're saying, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? And if you say grits, you're dying. There was, there was a dialectical thing for them. There was, um, there, there was something that identified them as, you can't say it this way. I'll do a little survey. Um, how many of you say, if you're going to get a canned drink that's carbonated and caramel colored, okay? How many of you would call that a soda? How many of you are getting a soda? Okay. How many of you are getting a pop? How many of you are getting... <laughs> By the way, you, there are no Yankees in this room. How, how many of you are getting a cold drink? Anybody getting a, how many of you are getting a Coke? Okay, all Coke people, you die. Okay, that's basically... Uh, Sometimes you should do this. There's a fascinating quiz in the New York Times. If you, if you just Google New York Times regional dialect quiz, um, it'll ask you things like that. Do you say pop? Not right now. I'm not telling you to do it right now. I just saw four people grab their phone. Oh, um, <laughs> It'll ask you the different things, that, how you say things. Like, do you say you, youans, y'all? How do you say that, you guys? You, ask about, you answer about 14 questions, and it'll tell you where you grew up. It's freaky accurate. That's what they know. They know how people say things, and they say, uh, we're going to cross. And by the way, um, this word shibboleth probably either means a grain of corn or probably more likely a, a torrent rushing of the river. They're probably looking at the, the river rushing, and they say, hey, say shibboleth. And if they say, yeah, shibboleth, you're done. <laughs> Here's how this story is. Jephthah led Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the town of Gilead. Um, tragedy personally, and now a civil war because one nation has wiped out the other nation and even ambushed them and taken their lives just because of how they sounded as they tried to cross the river. Here real quickly at the end, we're going to get three more judges, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. My application here is this gets us uh, (laughs) up to number 11. Samson's going to be number 12. The point of the 12 is that eventually God allows our rebellion to become complete until our only hope is found in him. By the time we get to the end here, every man's doing that which is right in their own eyes. There's no king in the land. They need a king, but not David, who is the king who follows right after this. We need Jesus the king. But this 12, getting us to 12, represents the 12 tribes. Uh, Real quickly, after him, Ibzon of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. How do you think he got 30 sons and 30 daughters? He's got a lot of wives. That's a problem. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside the clan. He's making tribal alliances. Uh, and, he gave, um, and, and for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives for them outside the clan. He's, he's got a harem. He's trying to build his own kingdom, making these tribal alliances. Ibsen led Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. 
Thank God for Elon. We don't know a blasted thing about him. We don't know if he's good or bad. Here's all we know. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, led Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in Ahijah in the land of Zebulun. That's all we know. That's all I'm going to say. After him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, the BMWs of the day. He's, he's now building a regal line. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Pirathon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. These three guys get us number 9, 10, and 11 on our way to Samson. Number 12, full corruption of God's people. Idolatry is not little statues in your house. Idolatry is any abandonment of full commitment to God as the priority of your lives. What are you enamored with? What is it that's shaping the way you live? That eventually results in a lack of you knowing how to even love God or love others around you. It messes up your relationships. It results in tragedy with you and God because you don't know who he is and how to relate him, relate to him because it's not the priority of your life, getting to know him by singing the right songs, watching the right shows, reading the right book, and, and learning the details of the story here. And, and it messes up how you love people around you. You end up hurting, damaging them, and you end up in conflict with people all over the place. So what are some next steps? from all of this crazy story. When you, when you do not really know God, tragic results will undoubtedly follow. If your view of God is shaped by something other than the truth of God's word, that's going to lead you to tragic results. There may be triumphs around you. God may even use you. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He won the victory, but there was personal tragedy and and relational tragedy everywhere. And, And knowing God is more than believing that he exists and just reading some stories. Knowing God is making it a priority to know what is he really like. And he reveals it right here. What is he really like? And, and relating to him out of that. And when you know God's story well, you, you know it in a way that allows you to know him and know his character so that you can love him well and love other people around you well. Jesus boiled it down that way. <laughs> boiled down the whole law. What are we supposed to learn from all of this? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourselves. And you only know that When you stop making deals with God, you let him be sovereign, you fall deeply in love with him, and you're saying, basically, you've given me, privileged me so much, how can I bless other people with my life? But the world doesn't tell you to live that way. The world tells you, get your peace, make a deal, make sure you're successful. And where does that leave you? Independent, enraged with your entitlement and absolutely furious with everybody around you because they're not cooperating with your success. But if you love God, you've got the peace of God that passes all understanding in your heart. And you love him, you submit to him, and you're walking around going, how can I bless somebody else in my life? Father, thank you for these giant warning stories. (laughs) 
Lord, I, I pray that you would use them to somehow shock us into the reality of how corrupting the world is and how subtle it is and how, um, how it overtakes us. And, and it just makes us angry. It doesn't make us satisfied when we're living the world's way. Father, I, I pray that we would find ourselves um, in positions where we are um, sacrificing for you rather than sacrificing things around us for ourselves. Father, I pray that we would find that you are the one we need. We don't need the lies and promises of the world that always leave us disappointed, frustrated, and angry, but we can find our satisfaction in you. (laughs) And Father, I pray that with that deep satisfaction that comes from you, knowing your sovereign control of the world and our lives, that it would free us up to bless some people around us. May we learn these lessons. May we learn them the easier way, not the harder way, when you give us over to the foolishness of our choices. And I pray that for myself, for our church, and for your people around the world. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.